0: glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Nevin Neal. All right, stand with me if you would please as we honor the reading of God's Word. Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also then that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth saving he that receiveth it. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, I mentioned last week and the week before, we'll we'll be following the same basic outline with each of these churches. We're considering four things about each church. Each church has introduced to them Christ, speaks to them and characterizes himself in some manner. Doesn't characterize himself exactly the same to any one of those churches. You can see as he deals with the church, as he counsels them, he'll reference back, to the way he characterized himself. So in this one, he will tell them, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and fight against those in the church with the sword of my mouth. Well, he referenced himself as the one who had the sharp two-edged sword. And so uh, there's, there's, there's significance in how he characterizes himself. I wonder, you have to think, how does the Lord Jesus characterize himself tonight to Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church? He will do so, I believe this, it's a two-edged sword. If you, as he says, if you're sitting here listening in Pergamos, how would this affect you? If you hear the Lord Jesus address the church, I am he that has the, the sharp two-edged sword, he says in verse 12, and the angel of the church in Pergamos right, these things saith he, he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. If you're sitting there holding the doctrine of Balaam, teaching the doctrine of Balaam, or the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, that's going to sound very threatening to you. If you are one being affected by those doctrines, ill, that's going to be very comforting to you. Say, praise God, we finally got some help coming. The Lord has taken note of the error that's crept into our church, and he's telling us to deal with it. The two-edged sword is, it's going to accomplish its purpose. It's either going to slay you, or it'll defend you. (laughs) My dad says it this way, God's word will either convert you or condemn you, but it's going to do one of the two. It will accomplish its purpose. You you and I cannot undo. You might be on the side of the sword of of God's word and say, whew, it didn't get me going that way. Well, it's coming back the other way. It cuts both directions. And so I believe this. It'll either purge us and prune us and make us more fruitful or cut us away and we're no longer of use to the Lord. And by cut away, I mean not losing one's salvation but being removed because of fruitlessness. God's word will accomplish its purpose. We ought to... On a regular basis, examine ourselves and say, how is God's word affecting me? Does it feel threatening to me or does it feel strengthening and comforting to me? And I don't mean our emotions so much as how is it affecting me when I hear God's word that it'll tell us where many times we are in disposition toward the Lord. And in this church, there were some good things and some bad things as we'll see. So the Lord will characterize himself. Our first point with each of these will be the characterization of Christ then we'll look at the comprehension of Christ. He tells what he, he tells with each church what he knows about them, and then the counsel of Christ. He'll give them some reproof and instruction, and then the consolation of Christ. With each church, he promises a reward to the overcomer. And the overcomer, of course, are those who have confidence in his shed blood. They overcame him, speaking of the, the evil one by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives unto the death. So it's not a fleshly overcoming, but a spiritual overcoming. Spiritual victory is always by faith in him, amen, not by faith in ourselves. We've been covering that. So let's go ahead and jump into this tonight in verse 12. The characterization of Christ we've referenced already, but let's read it one more time and give you some things here and some other scripture references to, to go to. Uh, I, I'll just say this before we give those scripture references. I don't know how much room you have in your Bible for making notes. I personally have a Bible that does not have a pre-made cross-reference. I do that on purpose. I used to. You have know, the cross-reference bar down the middle and for two reasons, I stopped doing that. As a pastor, I have certain cross-references that trigger in my mind. I want to write my own, okay? The other is, sometimes you look up the cross-references and you go, what? Why is that there? That has nothing to do. Well, sometimes it's a typo- typographical error. They put the wrong reference in. Sometimes you've got some student in the Bible and you know what he's thinking. But anyway, I like creating my own cross-references. And if you're a serious Bible student... I would encourage you to do that. It's a, it's a, it's a, it'll make your Bible study a more enjoyable and uh, helpful time if you approach it saying, you know, I know there's another verse in the Bible that says something very similar to this. So, for instance, the the Word of God being referenced as a two-edged sword is referenced over and over, Old and New Testament, many times. So it's good to have in your cross-reference, all those references written down. So if you're a note-taker tonight, I'm going to give you a number of references, many of them you're going to be familiar with already. I say a number, I think there's four different ones that refer to the Word of God as a two-edged sword, and uh, when we put all those together, my goodness, it's very helpful to see how the Holy Spirit of God has spoken of His Word the same throughout. So I'll give that to you in just a moment. Verse 12 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now while we're here, turn just a page back in your Bible, depending on how your Bible is laid out. Revelation 1.16 is going to be the first cross reference I'll give you. Then we're going to go back to Psalm 149. But Revelation 1.16 says, And he had, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he had in his right hand seven stars, And out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. We know we're getting here a a picture of Christ that is figurative. It it explains the figurative nature of it. Not all of Revelation is figurative, but here it is. The Lord Jesus has feet as brass, eyes as a flame of fire, hair that's white like wool, and out of his mouth goes a sharp, two-edged sword. I'll say this again. One of the most effective things you and I can do if we're trying to persuade men is give them the word of God. When we're discussing issues with men, one of the things the Lord helps me, and I need more help with it, but something he's had to help me do in dealing with people who do not believe what God's word teaches is to simply ask the... And a lot of times when you're dealing with someone like that, they are going to be someone who claims to believe the Bible or know the Bible or believe it at some level it's good to ask them, well, the Bible says this. So what do you do with that scripture? The word of God says this. So if you're dealing with someone who trusts their works for salvation, you can just say, but the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So as a person who believes your works are contributing to your salvation, how do you deal with Ephesians 2, 8, 9? And let them answer you. Normally they won't. <laughs> well, you know, you know, you know faith without works is dead. I do know that, but but that doesn't explain away Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it just explains it further. <laughs> you, you with me tonight? So it says, Well, I believe this. We need to be familiar enough with our Bibles. You don't have to be a theologian to be to be able to use God's word. My point is it, it's the word of God that cuts. It's not our it's not our logic, it's not our ability to reason. There are times I have been convinced I have come up with the illustration that will debunk every critic I meet. And I try it one time and realize they go right around my illustrations like, no, nope, that didn't work. <laughs> and illustrations are good and they're fine. Don't misunderstand me. But what works is the word of God, because God's word is it's sharp, meaning it's pointed, It's very pointed. It's very, very specific. Can we agree with that? So, for instance, in the beginning, God created The heaven and the earth is both pointed and specific. When someone says they're a Christian but says I don't fully believe in creation, it's best just to say, what about Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1? Let the Word of God... Do the cutting, amen? And, uh, and it will, it will every time. So we find this two-edged sword. We've, we've looked at two references thus far here in Revelation 2, verse 12, Revelation 1, 16. While we're in Revelation, before we go back to the Old Testament, let's just look at Revelation 19, verse 15. When the Lord Jesus returns to rule and reign, he's coming back, of course, as a conquering king. Revelation 19, verse 14. Let's go back to verse 13. Uh, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. We're in Revelation 19:13, And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So once again, we have that sharp sword coming out of His mouth in Revelation 19, 15. Not referred to as two-edged there, but we're obviously talking about the same sword. Now if you went to Psalm 149. Psalm 149. Now I love this text of Scripture because of how it aligns. Where is the... And we've, we've been through this before, so this is redundant to some of you. But where is the two-edged sword in relation to the Lord Jesus? In His hand or in His mouth? It's in His mouth. But in Psalm 149... Verses 5 and 6, the Bible says, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. You want a prophecy about the written word of God. You got it right there, Psalm one forty-nine, five and 6. The word that comes out of his mouth is in what relation to the believer? In our hand. I'm standing here tonight holding a two-edged sword. I was having a conversation with a man this week, and we were talking, he claims to be a Christian, and he he very well may be, God knows his heart, but he was talking about language and words and what words are appropriate for a believer to use and not, and certain words that are in the Bible that we would not use in our everyday vernacular, uh, and and I agreed with that. I said, sure, there are words that in themselves are not inherently wrong because they're in the book. But if we use them in the wrong context, we're still (laughs) filthy-mouthed. And we won't go into any detail, but there are words that the Bible uses in a historical context or uh, in some other way that used a different way become perverse language or corrupt language. So we're talking about what is appropriate and well, what does it mean to take God's name in vain? I've had that conversation numerous times. And so this individual said, he said, I'm just really concerned. He said, I think there are the words we just waste, we're just... We're we're just throwing words out there, they're useless, they're wasteful. I said, ah, that's a good point. So we gave him Colossians four, five, and six. The Bible says that uh, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Uh we're we're to be uh to, we're to have wisdom. Other people believe the Bible also talks about in those same verses, we're to to have wisdom in our speech. Ephesians four twenty nine says, Let no corrupt, useless Uh, Defiling, corrupt can simply mean that which is wasteful or vain and, and defiling. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. I said, we look at Colossians 4, 5, and 6, and Ephesians 4, 29, and then we start comparing what the Bible says in Proverbs about our speech. What comes through very clearly is that the person that's a child of God who has the Spirit of God dwelling in them, is to never use language that is not beneficial to the ears they fall on. That's God's rule. I would say that's narrower than, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. I would say, meaning, it's going to cover a lot more territory and hem you into a much more narrow path than the law. Grace is a a higher standard. Under law, you could say, Well, I wasn't really taking the name of the Lord my God in vain. Yeah, what I said maybe wasn't useful but I didn't use God's name when I cursed that fellow, <laughs> so on and so forth. But under grace, God says, no, here's what your speech must always be. When I said this as this man, he said, my goodness, you just removed half of my vocabulary. I said, I think that's God's point. <laughs> Amen. Point is, who did that? You know, what? all I did is quote verses. And his response was, based on what the Bible just said, and explain what they said, what they meant. He understood. A lot of what I say does not fall under that, what the, Bi- the Bible is pointed, sharp. Do you realize under Ephesians 4.29 and Colossians 4, 5, and 6, we can immediately start thinking of words that we say, yeah, I probably shouldn't be using that word then. If it's supposed to be all the way with grace, seasoned with salt, and it's not supposed to be corrupt, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. And I said that out of anger. I'm sure, I'm sure I shouldn't have said that, and that was said for the wrong reasons. So that wasn't right. My point is, it's, it's very specific. And here's the wonderful thing. What is in his mouth is in our hand. So Psalm 149, 5 and 6, uh, Revelation 116, um, Revelation 19, 15. Some Bible student tell me there's one more. Where is it at? Where the word of God is a sharp two-edged sword. Dawson? Bingo. Got it. All right. Can anybody quote it? Nobody will laugh at you if you don't quote it correctly. Okay. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is... Quick and powerful and sharpened to edge or piercing even to the dividing asunder. Of, of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a, amen, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God's word gets right down to where it's at, doesn't it? It gets right down. You know what? I may say a word, and you may say a word that will reveal um, something about our actions or our words we shouldn't do or say. It's very difficult for you and I to get our words to go to somebody's heart. But the Word of God gets right down to the thoughts and the intents. God's Word discerns our motives, and it's no wonder then in Revelation the Lord Jesus describes himself as the one with the sharp sword with two edges coming out of his mouth. Now here's the interesting thing. This is how he speaks to the church in Pergamos. Now, if you were going to speak to a persecuted church who had lost one of your fellow members as a martyr, would you and I typically introduce ourselves in this manner? But the Lord in wisdom knew how to deal with his church. He had those there, as we said in the introduction, who needed the defense of that two-edged sword. If if you are influenced by the doctrine of Balaam, you need the two-edged sword to deal with that. If you're under the influence of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, those who would overcome the people, make the people, in essence, slaves to the clergy, you need the two-edged sword on your side. And there's no, there's no doubt the Spirit of God in wisdom was, was doing two things in that. Let me put it to you this way. A shepherd gives what kind of sense to the sheep? Comfort. There's protection in the presence of the shepherd. There is security in the presence of the shepherd. But what kind of animal goes running when the shepherd shows up? A wolf. It's amazing to me how the word of God will comfort one person and cause them to be attracted to a local church, and that same message will tell somebody else, I'll never attend that church again. Isn't that amazing how that works? Goats and sheep often don't feed the same way. So sometimes it's a wolf, sometimes it's a goat. The point is, the two-edged sword does do its work. The Lord Jesus didn't say, I'm the one with the sword to terrify everybody. But he is letting the church know, I'm your defender, but I'm also the enemy of those who are trying to destroy you. He does still have a two-edged sword, and he still uses it uh, to accomplish his purpose in his churches. And so then, The Lord Jesus Christ is characterized uh, here as he that hath the sharp sword with two edges. And then we move on to the second point in our our outline tonight. Uh, We not only see the characterization of Christ in verse 12, but the comprehension of Christ in verse 13. He says in verse 13, "Uh, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Then we find a colon. He's going to give some more explanation. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. What a mouthful. This church had their work cut out for them. They're in a difficult spot. I've explained to you, there are some churches in places, in the United States and in other parts of the world, you can watch the kind of opposition those churches have gone undergone for decades. And you know they must be in a place where there is a satanic stronghold in a community where every time the Word of God starts to advance, all craziness, all kinds of craziness breaks loose in opposition to that church, and your heart goes out to them, and you're grateful for a church that in the midst of that kind of circumstance where there's an assault on them, every time they try try to move forward for the Lord, and they still stand fast and will not deny the name of Christ. And that's true abroad, and there's true in places here in the United States, There are places where you better have a deeply rooted faith if you're going to continue to serve the Lord in that church because there is an assault uh, because you're right in Satan's territory. I remind us, though, tonight that the Lord Jesus said, uh, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock himself I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Meaning the presence of Satan's seat does not mean there should be the absence of a church. Amen? Amen. The presence of satanic power does not mean a church cannot exist and even thrive in that atmosphere. Why? Because Christ has conquered Satan. And here we have a place where Satan's seat is, but Christ has put a church right there next to his embassy. He's planted his church right there. It happened, by the way. I'm sure they're not known, but there are churches in North Korea tonight. Amen? We don't advertise. People don't advertise. Do you realize the gospel is going into North Korea? There's the gospel going into Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan. There's these places where there's tremendous opposition. But the Lord, if we'll trust him, his power is greater. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so then Christ gives them some commendation as he did to the church at Ephesus. He says, I know thy works. So the first thing he says, I know your labor. I know what you're doing as far as your work and what you're doing for me, and where thou dwellest. The the second thing he says is, and I know, not only do I know what you're doing, I know where you're doing it. I am familiar with your circumstances. I know the setting you're working in. Uh, You can hear the compassion of Christ in that statement. I know thy works, and I know where thou dwellest. I know what you're up against. I know what you're dealing with. I'm familiar with that. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. So he knows their labor, he knows their location. He knows their opposition. And again, to us tonight, as we go out and we encounter people that are hard against the gospel, people are deceived uh, by, by being in the occult or being in a cult, either way, or just being... Uh, being hard and rebellious against God. Sometimes we get frustrated with the opposition we face because of the lies that are believed by people under the influence of Satan. We must remember the Lord knows that. He knows our work and He knows where we're working. He knows what our opposition is. He knows what our obstacles are. So I know thy labor and I know uh, where where you're laboring at, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And then He says this, And thou holdest fast my name. Under this satanic pressure, you're still holding fast my name. You're still defending the honor of my name. They were they were not compromising on who Jesus Christ was in the face of opposition uh, to pressure them to do that. And then he says, and hast not denied my faith. So they're loyal to his name. That has not just to do with the name, the, the word, Jesus, but his name and all that it represents. The virgin-born, sinless son of God who raised from the dead, coming again. King of kings, Lord of lords. They had been loyal to who he is and who he was. But then he said, you've not denied my faith. They were still, they were still holding to the body of truth that he had handed them. They had not denied the faith. He said, has not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr. One of their church members, Antipas, had been killed where Satan dwelleth, meaning at the seat of Satan. Antipas, one of their brethren, had been killed for the name of Christ, for the faith of Christ, for believing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ had been killed. And the Lord says, even when Antipas was killed, you still held true. Meaning, I know, I know your faithfulness. Now, what else needs to be said? If you've got a church that has not denied your name, that has not denied the faith, even under the greatest of tests, when Antipas, one of their fellow brethren, was martyred, what kind of pressure does that put on you? Look, do you think church would be different next week if on Sunday we come in and Jeff's not here and somebody says, um, where's Jeff? Is he sick today? We're like, no, he's in jail. Whoa, what did he do? Well, he was out passing out a gospel tract somebody on Saturday having a conversation about the Lord. He was told to stop by law enforcement, and when he didn't, they arrested him, beat him, and threw him in jail. You think that might affect our evangelistic efforts this week? The most natural thing to do is, ha, huh, don't talk to people in public about the Lord. Right? What well, if somebody says the next week, how's Jeff? Like, they hung him. Who hung him? The local government. Why? Because when they, they told him not to do it again, he wouldn't assure them that he wouldn't, so they just said, okay, we'll make an example out of you and hang you. And the Lord said, in the face of that, you all continued to do the same thing. You held true. Could there be anything wrong with a church like this? But there was. Now, here's, here's what we can learn of our Savior. I'll just be honest with you. My natural tendency, if I had somebody had gone through all of that, and I could see something wasn't right about them, let's say I had a child, and they had let's say I'd been let's just use a very simple illustration. I mean, my wife and I are gone for the evening, and I come back and I've realized there's been a, a, a disagreement among my children at home, and one of the young ones is just crying and crying, and I left instructions. Now, here's what you're going to do. Um, when I'm gone, you're going to. This is your chore to clean up, and their mom gives them instructions about clean up, and you're going to be in bed at 8:30, and so on and so forth. And I get back, and I realize that there was a discussion and a disagreement, and one of the other ones tried to get them to disobey, and they said no, and they got in a fight, and the other one bloodied his nose. And man, I mean, but they would not cave in. They are going to be faithful to obey mom and dad. But then they're still not in bed on time when they could have been. You know, you know what I would say. You know what? We're going to overlook that. With all you went through, we're not going to talk about what you didn't do right. But not Jesus. Many people don't know Christ very well. <laughs> because they say, you got a church that's been through persecution, and you got a church that stood firm. If they don't have something right with all they've gone through, they don't need to hear reproof. Naturally, can we all sympathize with that way of thinking? I can sympathize with that way of thinking. But that's not him. Because you know what? They had something that was there that had infiltrated the church that would do more damage than the martyrdom of Antipas. You realize Satan, his his attacks are often twofold. We see this in the political world. We see this in the political world. If you know anything about communism, they did not stop attacking the United States after the Cold War. They just changed the way they did it. And when it comes to Satan's attack on a church, it never stops. He just changes his methods. What he will do is put all on, he'll get people to outward. There's there's outward, open, visible opposition. But when you can withstand that, you know what he'll do? He'll start trying to infiltrate by inward opposition. So let me give you a couple of examples in Scripture before we move on. In the Old Testament, you had Hezekiah, who was under assault from Sennacherib, king of Assyria, They besieged the city. Hezekiah cries out to God. God delivers them, kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. That was obvious opposition, was it not? Then Hezekiah is told, you're going to die. And he cries and begs for his life. And God says, okay, you can live. I'm going to give you 15 more years. And the opposition didn't stop. It just changed. Now the Babylonians showed up and said, hey, we heard that you were going to die and now you're better. We are so proud of you. Can we come see what you got? And he says, come in, look what I have. And he showed them everything, his children, his palace. And in those 15 years, a young man was born by the name of Manasseh. Manasseh brought the judgment of God on Israel. It was during the period of time when Hezekiah showed off the Babylonians. You know what he did? When Satan says, if I can't defeat you as your enemy, I'll defeat you as your friend. Now hear me now. There are times we get opposition you know, from the community, mocking and bad people saying names about the church or this. If that doesn't work, then there has to be an effort to infiltrate with false doctrine. And the Lord Jesus, in his kindness, as much as he commends them for their faithfulness, they were still in danger by what was among them. We learn a number of things by his counsel to the church at Pergamos. Look at verse 14. Now we've moved from the characterization of Christ to the comprehension of Christ. He comprehends their labor, their location, and their loyalty to him. And then he begins to give them counsel in verse 14. He says, But I have a few things against thee. All the things I just said are good and they're right about you, but I have a few things against thee because thou hast there, meaning at their church, with them, thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Time does not permit us to go back tonight and read the story of Balaam, but you, uh, I'm assuming, are going to be fairly familiar with that story. Balaam was hired to curse God's people seven times is my understanding, multiple times. He offered multiple sacrifices, asked God to curse him, and God says, I will not. If God cursed Israel, God would have to lie to Abraham. He said, I'll bless those that bless you and I'll curse those that curse you. And so, no matter what Balaam's going to say, God's not going to change His mind. But trust me, Balaam tried. What Balaam wanted to do is what God promised He wouldn't do. Therefore, we know what kind of man Balaam was. He was wicked. He posing himself as a person that loved God. He did have the word of God, but he was he was an apostate. So, what Balaam could not do through a direct curse, God wouldn't curse them. So, Balaam used the faithfulness of God against God's people. Balaam knew that if they committed whoredom with the Midianites and the Moabites, God would have to punish them. God was not going to tolerate immorality among his people or idolatry. And so Balaam counseled, he counseled the children of Israel to let down the the boundaries of separation. Go ahead and eat the things that you know are sacrificed to false gods. Go ahead, it's okay. God God is, is, is understanding. God is gracious. Go ahead. God doesn't care if you participate in idolatry by eating things you know are sacrificed to idols. That's okay. Remember, remember, God is gracious. And then they went on to say, and God would be okay if you intermarried with these people. Now, God has specifically told them not to. You keep a line of separation there. They'll turn your hearts away from God. Were it not for a man named Phineas who went in and his zeal slew a couple of people, the judgment of God would continue to consume God's people because when they committed whoredom and they ate things sacrificed to idols, God began to kill the people. Right? How'd it happen? Balaam, when he could not get God to curse them, he taught the people how to sin. Now you hear me warn much about the teachings today on so-called grace, and it normally starts with the doctrines of grace. You hear me warn, you say, Pastor, you are a little bent out of shape over Calvinism. It is a religion, it is a doctrine that leads down a road to destruction. I hope you'll hear me tonight. People say, that's just a little too narrow. Well, I'm sure people thought that about Phineas when he warned against Balaam's doctrine as well. Balaam's doctrine destroyed a number of people. Let me just say this, with God being my helper... Well, I'm the pastor of this church. There's not room for Calvinism to breathe in this building and in this church. Amen? The doctrines of grace turn in God's grace into lasciviousness. Some of the best, I used to say, well, I know some Calvinists are very conservative. By and large, have you ever heard of a guy named Bill Hibbles in Illinois? Calvinism. Uh, The guy over in Seattle uh, with Mars Hill Church, Calvinism. I'm telling you, it opens the door. You would think that it would be a conservative doctrine that would lead to conservative outcomes. It does not. It leads to a false understanding of God's grace that just like Arminianism in its end does the same thing. It opens the door to corruption. And I know that God wasn't talking about Calvinism. Here's the doctrine of Balaam. But you know what the doctrine of Balaam did? It it represented God in such a way so as to give the people a license to sin while claiming to be the people of God. God's grace never licenses us to sin. It liberates us from it. There, it's never a license to sin. God's grace has brought us to the cross of Christ where we are not only have His cross on our behalf to pay for our sins, but by His cross we die to self. So there's not a life of licentiousness. Me, hear me. If you have someone, a loved one, or in your own life you're reading materials that are telling you that God does not care if you live loose according to your own desires. Someone is misrepresenting God's grace to your life. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, Titus 2.11. What does the grace of God teach us? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. You know, Some people call that straight-laced and narrow-minded. Can I remind you tonight that the Christian way is narrow? Straight is the gate and narrow is the way, meaning I can't go do that over there because I'm following Christ. I can't think that thought. I can't entertain that path. That's not the will of Jesus Christ who died for me. And the grace of God will keep you loyal to a Savior, loyal to Him, loyal to His mind, loyal to His heart. Why? Because He died for me. And any message of grace that gives license to do What the Spirit of God has forbidden in His Word for the Christian to do is not the grace of God at all. The doctrine of Balaam taught the people that as worshipers of God, they had license to worship other gods as well. May I say this today? I hear some people on the radio, some personalities claiming to be Christians and that over and over comes out of their mouth. You need to build wealth. You need to build wealth. You need to get wealthy. You know what that person's teaching? You can serve God and mammon. Again, that's a little narrow. That's not narrow. That's, that's the truth. God said, he that, they that will be rich fall into a snare. Do you realize you and I are to never make getting rich our goal as a Christian? Friend, nothing could be clear in the Bible. Labor not to be rich, Proverbs says. Labor not to be rich. Say it's a sin to be rich? No, but it's a sin to pursue riches. Amen. That's as, read 1 Timothy 6. They that will be rich fall into a snare and many hurtful lusts that will pierce them through with many sorrows. So when you have someone teaching, you can pursue riches and follow Jesus Christ at the same time. I mean, you can make getting rich your goal and being obedient to Christ is your goal as well. Someone's leading you astray. Amen. Because what they're saying is you can worship two gods at one time. Isn't that what Balaam said? You can commune with those who are worshiping not our God. That's what it means to eat meat sacrificed to idols. You know you are fellowshipping with people who deny the only God and are worshiping devils, and you're going to commune with them in the food that you know was offered to those idols. Meaning with conscience, you're eating something that you know is promoting idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. Amen? It's the idolatry of America uh, today is covetousness. And so... The Lord Jesus gives them a concise reproof. He says, here's, here's what i got against you. Now, notice this. This is something we, re- we learn about church government. Is a local church responsible for the doctrines that are present in that church? Yes. Not just the pastor. As a church body, we are held responsible by our Savior for the doctrines that are here. So if people can come here and hear false doctrine taught, as a church we're held accountable. That's why I'll just say to you as your pastor, if I start teaching the doctrine that's forbidden there, you have a responsibility as a church to deal with that. Now God forbid I would do that to you, but it is the responsibility of the church body to keep certain doctrine out. The doctrine of Balaam that taught people it was okay to license things God has clearly forbidden. We have doctrines of grace to hear me now. You realize in the local New Testament church, God says if you have a member that is a drunkard or a fornicator or an idolater or covetous, they're not to be retained. You're, spo- you're supposed to in love for the Lord and for them. You've got to turn them over so God can deal with them. You realize in the name of grace how many fornicators today are retained as members in good standing of churches? There's the doctrine of Balaam behind that somewhere. You know what's bringing on the churches of America? Death. It's killing our churches. Drunkards who are kept in good standing in churches, uh, idolaters, covetous people, extortioners, people that are openly, blatantly living lives that an idolater would live and are retained in good standing and in good fellowship because we are just supposed to love. But friend, that's not love. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil cleave to that which is good. The Lord Jesus says, Pergamos, you've been a faithful church, but I've got a few things against you. You have there in your church. He doesn't, by the way, do you realize he does not recognize those that have the doctrine of Balaam as being part of the church? He says, you have there in your church. Meaning, it's not you, but you have present with you. They're among the assembly, but they're not part of. You have there with you those that have the doctrine of Balaam. And he says, here's what he did. He taught the nation of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication, things that no person in any time frame under any dispensation should ever do. Balaam succeeded in getting God's people to do it. So you need to look in our lives. Who is it that's teaching us that immorality is something that's just part of being in youth? Not in God's book. No. We're to put that away. And so then, where well, that's laid aside. Amen? So if someone is teaching us that, if we're getting that from somewhere that's not of God, and the Lord is against it. And it was a doctrine. It was a teaching that led people. By, what did Jesus say? By their fruits ye shall know them. If a doctrine is giving me license to violate the word of God and the will of God in my life uh, in relation to loyalty to him, and love for him, obedience to him, then it's, it's not of the Lord and he's not for it. By the way, you know what else it tells us? When the Lord is dealing with this church, you know one of the major things he's concerned about? Doctrine. Did you have a doctrine there that's not right. You have the doctrine of Balaam, and then he goes on saying you have, you have two false doctrines in that church. The doctrine of Balaam, which taught God's people to, to commit uncleanness and idolatry, fornication and idolatry. Verse 15, so hast thou also... Them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. I think the Lord has some pretty strong feelings about Nicolaitanism. (laughs) Twice he told the church at Ephesus, uh, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. But you know what? The deeds of the Nicolaitans were coming because this church had their doctrine. The teaching of the Nicolaitans was, again... The word Nicolaitan means to conquer or overcome the people. I'm going to warn you. You say, can we find the doctrine of Nicolaitans today? Absolutely. You We're know going to find it. A pastor or a teacher that tells you when you read your English Bible, you cannot, as a as a layman who doesn't know the original languages, you can't hear from God. You've got to have someone that can go back and study the original languages to tell you what God actually said. Because we nowhere today have God's word in any language perfect today. So someone's going to have to go back into history, into the original languages, and pull out what God really said for you. And that creates a chasm between the pew and the pulpit. I'm going to tell you something tonight. I'm like you, and you're like me. I have a gifting that may be different than yours, but we have the Spirit of God, we have the Word of God, and you do not need to know the original languages to hear from God. Praise God for people who can study the original languages so they can translate into language today faithfully. But when you have preachers today, by and large, the the overwhelming mentality, I've said this before, and bear with me, but tell me, remind me tonight, why were we given the King James Bible in 1611? What led up to that? What moved Tyndale to lose his life so you and I as English-speaking people can understand our Bible? It was Nicolaitanism. You had priests who said, don't give the common man the Bible. They'll run with it. It'll expose our ungodliness. You had priests who were fornicators and adulterers and child abusers. And if they get their hands on the Bible, we're in trouble. So let's keep it in a tongue they cannot speak. And Tyndall said, I want a Bible that the plowboy can read and understand. And it's why the Catholic Church killed him. (laughs) Because he was doing the work of God. And you know how much of our King James Bible came from the work of William Tyndall? Now Tyndall tapped into a lot of other work from other men. But something like 80% of our Bible came from Tyndall's work. I, I don't have the statistic in front of me. Here's a man who said, we, we cannot have the clergy and the laity because what happened is, if you wanted to know what the Bible meant, you didn't, you couldn't own a Bible of your own. And if you could, you couldn't read it. And there were some God, men in, in the Catholic Church that got, read their Bible, got saved, like William Tyndall, and said, people've got to know the words of God. And he had, he traveled, he had to run from his church most of his life the germany and other places so the bible could be printed and what happened when people got this king james bible in 1611 they began to read and began to expose the errors they were taught by the clergy and they began to say wait just a minute we're not saved by keeping the rituals we're saved by grace and as men got their Bible and could read their Bible, it brought back what the Lord Jesus wanted in the first place, not men lording over His heritage, but men loving and leading by example. Don't lord over God's heritage, but that's what the priesthood was doing in the Catholic Church and still does it today, making pawns and using people and getting wealth out of their pockets and building themselves up. God never intended for pastors to be idols. They're to be shepherds. Amen? But that's what Nicolaitanism is. You know what? Jesus Christ hates it. And he does not. We who are pastors, the moment that our position puts us on a pedestal of, of admiration, and I understand respecting the work, and we're, just, we're to obey God in that honor and all of that according to, to the Word of God. But when it turns into man worship, it's turned into sin. And if we as pastors create that environment, shame on us. And if the people create... And by the way, we as people, that's natural for us. Men worship is natural. It amazes me. I believe humanity prefers tyranny over the leadership of Christ. Because tyranny makes it easier. You make all the decisions and I can blame you when it goes wrong. Eh. God says, I don't want it that way in my churches. We're We're to know the Word of God. We're to have it in our hand. And what I'm trying to say today is it's come full circle. In 1611 when we got a Bible that the common English speaker could read and understand not because it was dumbed down, but because it was in, in a language that people knew. People try to say, that, the King James is so old, nobody can understand it. Give me a break. Do I actually have to read tonight and have an interpreter? What a bunch of nonsense. Just, it's just nonsense. But what's happened is the general belief among the, most preachers today, it's not an overstatement, most preachers in America today, if you said, do we have God's perfect word in our tongue, most would say no. No, we believe that the, word, that the Bible is the inspired and infallible and inerrant Word of God in the original languages. Which means if you don't know the original languages, what don't you have? You don't have the Word of God. Truth? You know what it is? It's created Nicolaitanism. So now you have to have someone tell you the average man says, Well, I don't, I don't know Greek and I don't know Hebrew. So I need somebody that does to tell me what really the Bible means. Hmm? Nicolaitanism. And so this is more than just which version you prefer to read. Don't let somebody if somebody tells you that, don't fall for it. A, there's a bigger picture involved. And the Lord Jesus says, so I've given you some examples tonight of Nicolaitanism and the and the doctrine of Balaam. I began to say earlier, it begins many times with the doctrines of grace, so called we have today is this radical grace that's nothing more than opening the door of license to live loose and sinful, and it's not of God. And so the concise reproof is, I, you church at Pergamus, you've done a wonderful job being faithful to my name and my faith, even when Antipas was killed. But you do have among you and with you the doctrine of Balaam, and you also have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And he says this in verse 16, Repent. that's pretty straightforward. Meaning, you have been willing to tolerate these doctrines in your midst. He's not even saying everybody believes them. He said you have them with you. So repent would mean what? And that would look like what when they've done it? (laughs) It's out. (laughs) Don't tolerate these doctrines in your church. The Lord Jesus says you have something there I'm not willing to tolerate. I hate it. I don't want it in my church. So you got to repent. Verse 7 and 16. Repent or else. Wait a minute. Who's talking here? He says the same thing here he did to the church at Ephesus. Repent or else. If you don't, I'm going to have to deal with you. A loving father would say to his child, you're doing this, and that's the decision you've made, but it's not something I want you doing in your life. Now, you either stop or there's going to be chastisement. Why would that father chastise to get out of the life the thing that's going to destroy that child? The Lord Jesus will tell us in Revelation 3, Whom I love, I chasten and rebuke. Oh, how many have lost sight of who Jesus is. They have a foreign concept of Christ. And he says, eh, Repent or else I will come unto thee. What does he say? Quickly. And will fight against... Now listen to this. Them with the sword of my mouth. He didn't say he's going to come and destroy his church. He didn't say I'm going to come and fight against you. But this is where it shows he does not recognize them as part of the church. You've got people there, and if you don't deal with it, I'm going to have to, and I'm going to do it quickly. And I'm going to fight against them with the sword of my mouth if you don't address this and deal with it. And so contrary to many who have painted the Lord Jesus as some sort of humanist, who is okay with everything? <laughs> no, no. He says you got doctrine in your church, and if you don't deal with it, I'm going to come and deal with it with the word of my mouth, with my, with the sword of my mouth. And so then he cautions them. He gives concise reproof, calls them to repent, and cautions them of retribution against those in the church who were bringing in doctrines that were that were damaging to the church. Number four, the consolation of Christ. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, now he's talking to us. He's not just talking to them in the church because He doesn't say, He that hath an ear, let, the, let, the, let him hear what I'm saying to you. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. That tells us His message is eternal. When you and, He knew you and I would read this someday. So if you've got an ear, if you've got enough faith in your heart to give wisdom to your ear to comprehend what I'm saying, listen to me. Hear what I'm saying to the churches. And He goes on to say, To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written which no man knoweth saving he that receiveth it. The best I can tell you about the hidden manna, let's remember from Sunday morning's message, where was the golden pot of manna stored? In the Ark of the Covenant. Meaning, to him that overcometh, you'll be near me, close to me, right in my very presence. The hidden manna was in the Ark of the Covenant. It was in there hidden away, and he said, I will take of that man and I'll feed you, meaning you'll be close enough. It's talking about a nearness to God. When we overcome through Jesus Christ, we're brought nigh unto God. Amen. And you say, what does that man all represent? Well, the man is sustained. It sustained the children of Israel, gave them strength to serve the Lord. Uh, Revelation eleven nineteen talks about the, the ark of, of his testament being in heaven, and that would be where that manna would be. And then he says, a white stone. And again, I can only tell you as much as I could, could figure from this. Number one, white always stands for purity. Purity. What is he dealing with in this church? The lack of purity. You're defiled with false doctrine, but if you overcome, you hear what I say, and you overcome, I'll give you a white stone. A stone has to do with that which is unmovable. You know what? They've been resilient. they had not moved. And that seems to be symbolic of their unchanging purity and devotion to him and his word. I'll give you a white stone. And he says this. Uh, uh, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. How many of you would be familiar enough with your own character to know your own weaknesses, faults, and failings? Can you imagine, if you, you just think to yourself, if you were to say, this is one of my primary weaknesses, if I have a flaw in my character, this is it. Can you imagine the Lord giving you a name that was the opposite of that failing in your life? Maybe you have a private weakness that only you and God know about. He says, to him that overcometh, by the way, they overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, what he did for you and your faith in him. Can you imagine? Let's say say you say, man, the Lord knows I am weak when it comes to covetousness. I have a hard time being content, but I'm willing to trust Christ to not tolerate that in my life. And you get to heaven, he gives you a white stone, and its name is contentment. I'm just trying to say this. Whatever was on there, it was so personal. The entire, the entire connotation of this is you're going to have the hidden manna, that which is nearest the presence of God, I'm going to feed you with. And I'm going to give you a name that only you and the Lord are going to know. On a white stone. Meaning He's going to recognize your faithfulness, your, your loyalty and devotion to His Word, and give you a name that is so, it's so personal between you and He that only you're going to know the name that He put on there. You're the only one's going to recognize it. I don't know what all that has to deal with other than it's dealing with a closeness to God. You know what? We can belong to the Lord without being close to the Lord. You know how we get close to the Lord? When we're willing to be loyal to His Word at any cost. We say, you know what? I'm not willing to talk, tolerate that doctrine because He's not. Well, no, nobody else agrees with you that I'm in agreement with Him. Amen? Why am I in agreement with Him? Because I trust Him. Trust His Word. Well, I tell you what, I don't know about you, there's a white stone to be had with a name on it. I want it. <laughs> but you know how we're going to overcome? This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. We have to trust Him. Uh, 1 Peter 2.5 says, "Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. I can't help but to think that white stone represents us when, we've been, when we by faith been loyal to his word in a willingness to reject that which is contrary to him uh, in order to be faithful to him. And so tonight, he gives his characterization to them, his comprehension of them, his counsel to them, his consolation to them is, him that overcometh, here's what I'll give you, hidden manna and a white stone with a name that only him that has it will know. Uh, You know what? The Lord speaks to the church, but he works for the individual, does he not? It's a message to the church, but the individual has to respond.